Hey everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to The Sunday Sermon. The Old Testament reading this morning is from Hosea chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Barry, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to your wives yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter, And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned No Mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. The New Testament reading is from Romans chapter 9, verses 22 through 26. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I shall call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there There they will be called the sons of the living God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. 
I was afraid yesterday that my voice was going to be very sore after all of the singing and trying to talk over the loud band, which was phenomenal, at the reception yesterday. But apparently my voice is just well, and I'm gonna ask if you have any photos of me dancing, please erase them. <laughs> please? <laughs> no, great times, great times. But my name is Jerry Ornelas. I'm one of the pastors here at CPC, and just wanna thank you for, for being here. We hope that you meet Jesus. If you don't know him, and we, and we pray that if you do know him, you know him more. More and more, we're always, always as believers, pressing on to know our Lord and Savior more. To go deeper into fellowship with him. And the sermon and the church service as a whole is, is meant to help you with that. And to push you into those better, deeper regions of Christ's heart. So with that being said, let's pray, and then we will jump into this wonderful book about Hosea and another marriage, but not quite as beautiful as the one that we saw yesterday. So let's pray. Father in heaven, oh Lord, let me not, not, not that word roll off our tongues, Father, that we have the great and grand privilege to utter such a wonderful pronoun, Father. You love us. We thank you, Lord, that you have just shown that you have forgiven us and that we can respond and sing to your mercy. Oh, Father, help us see how great and how deep your love is, your relentless love is for your people, how relentless your love is for this world, that you would give your son to a people who don't care for you, who don't worship you. Also, Father, prepare our hearts. Help us to see with clear eyes how relentless is your faithfulness towards us. In Christ's name I pray, amen. And you know, that really is the message right there. The relentless love of God, the relentless love of God towards you, towards his people, and that's the message, and I hope that's what we see. So we're in the book of Hosea. Now, just to situate the book really briefly, Hosea, the, historically speaking, comes before the book we were previously in. That was, that was Daniel. Years before. This was a time in Hosea in which it was very prosperous. Very prosperous in this land. And he was actually the, he was the, the prophet that preached to the northern kingdom of Israel. If you remember there, Israel, the nation of Israel was split up into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom being Israel, the southern kingdom being Judah. And Hosea is there in Israel preaching to a land that is enduring quite a bit of prosperity. But religiously, religiously speaking, it was in hard times. As I said, she was financially stable. Her borders were rather safe because the enemies abroad were dealing with their own, their own conflicts. Politically speaking, they're safe. They're, they seem to be healthy. Poverty levels, we can say, if I can modernize it a little bit, we're, we're good. I mean, should I say we're low? Bigger homes, bigger bank accounts, less taxes. This is a rather healthy time, financially speaking, for the nation of Israel. If you want to know the context of that, you should go back home sometime and read 2 Kings. 
specifically chapters 9 through, I believe, 14. And you'll see there, outwardly speaking, great. But not only was it prosperous times, behind the veil it was politi- there was political unease and internal factions. After Israel's king, Jeroboam II, his death, listen to this, there were six kings in a matter of 36 years. Six kings in a matter of 36 years. In, in a one-year period, there were four kings who took the throne at different times. Assassination after assassination, death after death. Even though outwardly speaking, Israel was not, didn't have to worry about finances. They didn't have to worry about external pressures. Internally, there was greed, there was factions, there was political turmoil. There was mistrust, there was injustices, conspiracies, and I said before, assassinations. There was deep instability which no amount of financial gain could solve. It was also a time of internal, or should I say, international aggression. Now, I know I just said that they didn't have to worry about other nations coming to get them, but there still was this growing threat of Assyria, this growing threat, and Israel knew so. Israel knew that if, if they wanted to protect themselves, they needed to ally the, uh, align themselves with that power. So that's exactly what Israel did. They aligned themselves with Assyria, not just for the military prowess, but also for their cultural delights. It was greatly advantageous for Israel to be in union to ally themselves with Assyria. I mean, why wouldn't you? So you're a small nation. You see this big nation coming your way. Why wouldn't you ally yourselves with them? It seems to be a very smart political international move. But that's just the problem with Israel. They've always, always wanted the favor of another other than God. They feared man more than they feared God. They were commanded over and over in the Old Testament to not ally themselves with foreign nations. That God was going to rescue them, protect them, not by horses, not by military power, but by his own strength. And Israel couldn't see that. They didn't want that. They saw the glit and the glamour of the world. They feared man more than they feared God. And that's why the Proverbs and his wisdom can say that the fear of man lays a snare. A snare that being a, a trap. Being a trap. Think of a bear trap. You put food in the trap and all the bear sees is the food. Doesn't see the trap. It wants the food more than it fears the trap. So what happens? It gets caught, and the only way for that bear to get himself out is to rip his leg off. That's the picture there. The fear of man lays a snare. To put it another way, the hunger for man's approval lays a deadly trap. And that's what Israel's in right now. Is she is in a t- the tight grip of the trap of idolatry. This very tight grip. As a matter of fact, it was not... So it was near the end of um, Hosea's ministry 
that the northern kingdom of Israel was actually conquered by the very one that she allowed herself with. And there's a point of application there, isn't there? Just with the very history of, of, of Hosea, the history of Israel at this time. Beware of hungering after the world's approval. Beware of compromising obedience to God for the smile of culture. Isn't that always a temptation? I must confess it is for me. In small ways. You'll never see me on CNN. You'll never see me on Fox News. You'll never see me on social media doing these things. Oh, but let me be around my unbelieving friends. And they crack jokes about Christianity. Or they say mean things about Christianity, about not just Christianity, but I'll say this about God, about Jesus. And what do I do? I justify saying absolutely nothing. Because it's not because I think it's the wisest thing to do, but because I don't want their frown. That's what I don't want. Above all else, I don't want their frown. Beware of it. There's a quote that says this from another pastor. If your driving motive in life is to be liked, if your driving motive in life is to be liked, you will find it almost impossible to be a Christian. Almost impossible to be a Christian. So we see that Israel is financially prosperous and there's unease in the, pol- in the political reign and there's danger from abroad. But behind all this, behind all her problems, it was a period of religious decline. And we actually see that right there, right here in verse 1. We actually see it in verse 1, believe it or not. Actually, everything I said we've seen in verse 1 and verse 2. Just look at all those names. All those names of the kings. King after king. And none of these kings, absolutely none of these kings were good kings. And they were not judged based on how good or bad their politics were. They were based on how good, or how should I say, how closely they followed the covenant. How closely they followed the law of God. Read through the, read through the kings. Over and over again, the kings are judged based upon, did, they, did their hearts follow after God? Or did their hearts follow after their father, Jeroboam? Now a brief story on Jeroboam. This is not Jeroboam the second here, but Jeroboam prior to this Jeroboam. Read, again, 1 Kings. 2 Kings, excuse me. Right there in chapter 9. Jeroboam decides that he is going to, in this wise political move, he's going to set up his own worship in two different parts of Israel. Now, this worship was to be to the true God, but guess what he used? Golden calves. Ring a bell? Set up these golden calves and set up his own priesthood in these two different places. That's what he was doing. And from that point on, from that point on, every single king of Israel was judged. He became sort of the, 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 the litmus test for how bad a king could be. So right there you see there's political decline. That's the deeper problem, and which beget all of her external problems. And isn't it, always, isn't it often always the case? I can probably faithfully say that it is. This is true. That prosperity does not beget piety. 
that financial success does not birth faithfulness. Military power or political power or cultural favor does not equal favor with God. How often have we heard that? It's almost ad nauseum. And this is not to say that money in of itself you should toss away and poverty is somehow more pious than, than wealth. It's not what it's saying. What I'm saying is wealth has a way of dampening our prayers. Pursuit of wealth, wholeheartedly pursuit wealth. Because why would you need God if you have the world? Why would you need God if you have the world? So the issue is not wealth, the issue is fidelity. And wealth does not give that. And Israel had to learn that lesson. So the soul of Israel is on life support at this point. She's teetering on the brink of ruin. As a matter of fact, she will be undone. But at this point in Hosea's ministry, every sermon he preached, the souls of the nation, the souls of the people of Israel were teetering on the brink of destruction. And Hosea's heart went out to them. That's the heart behind this, this great book. As the nation's leaders go, so goes the people. And unless the revival broke out in the hearts of God's people, it'll only be a matter of time before she fell. Israel had lost her distinctiveness. One of the things that Israel wrestled with was not just that she wanted wealth and power, but she saw wealth and power in, in, in the ways that Assyria did things. So she mixed and mingled her religion with the Syrian religion. She mixed and mingled it. That's what happens. It's so easy. It's so easy to do that. Oh, you know, I've watched on, 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 on MTV the, a, a great worship service. Oh, all the glit and the glamour, the church says, oh, you know what? The world loves that. Why don't we do that? It's so easy. It seems so advantageous. It seems so practical and pragmatic just to do the things that the world, to give people what the world already gives them. And Israel is giving the Assyria no more than Assyria is giving them. We're always looking for shortcuts to paradise, aren't we? And that's what Israel is looking for, shortcuts to paradise. If I can just have more of this and more of that, I'll be content. So I'll take from whatever, I'll pull from whatever to find this, this desire for contentment, this desire for paradise. Shortcuts. That's what we're looking for, shortcuts. Not even omnipotence takes shortcuts to paradise. That's really the first point. Is that prosperity is no sign of faithfulness. No sign. And that's the message of Hosea is that 
there's this broken relationship between Israel, his bride, and himself, between God. This is deep fracture, and Israel doesn't see it. And that's why, that's why you get here in Hosea this picture of a marriage between Gomer and Hosea. That's why this message is meant to catch us off guard. This, this, this picture of one of God's prophets marrying a prostitute. Marrying a prostitute. This is meant to wake us up. This is meant to wake those up who don't recognize God, who don't know God, or who have flimsy, or have flimsy relationship with God, or those who have this sort of cocktail religion. A little religion here, a little culture there, and I can mix and mingle and have this great cocktail delight. Have the best of both worlds. And this message confronts the people. And the first thing he says, the very first thing he says is, you have a broken relationship with God. Your relationship with God is broken. And so lots of problems have come into your life because of, because of this. Not because of Assyria, not because of this and that, but you have a broken relationship with God. So Isaiah tells us that prosperity is of no sign of faithfulness. And secondly, idolatry is spiritual prostitution. And that's what we see in um, verse 2 all the way through verse 9 with a picture of Hosea marrying a prostitute and then Gomer having three children with specific names, which are prophetic names, to say the least. So when Hosea spoke about sin and a broken relationship with God, he wasn't really deal- he wasn't dealing with strict dogma or ideas or philosophies. Rather, this was a painful reality for Hosea himself. At the heart of this prophecy was his actual marriage to a woman named Gomer. He married a woman, listen to this, he married a woman who in the future will be helplessly unfaithful. So his painful broken marriage became a living parable of Israel's spiritual reality. And even more shocking, it was God who commanded Hosea to take this woman. You You may be asking the question, why would God command Hosea, one of God's prophets, to marry a prostitute? As a matter of fact, this is listed as one of the sins that at least a, a priest couldn't do in the Old Testament. So why would God do that? If you're asking that question, you're asking a very good question. And you're actually getting at one of the, one of the, the, the hearts of this passage. You're actually getting at the, you're asking the question that's going to get us at the ugliness and absurdity of sin. I think we can answer it this way. The actual marriage of Hosea and Gomer is in reality the same type of marriage between God and Israel. In other words, Hosea was not being asked to do anything in respect to Gomer, which was other than what the Lord himself himself had done in respect to Israel. God himself had joined himself to a spiritual prostitute. Isn't Isn't that scandalous? That's a bit of, that's a bit of, that's a bit scandalous. 
And that's, 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 that's the point of the parable. That's the point of this, of this, of this prophecy. That, that's the point of God saying, Hosea, go marry and love and have children with a woman who is going to be unfaithful to you and to love her. Love her. Enter into a covenant with her. Think about it. There was this, for, for Hosea and Gomer, there was this great wedding day. If you were there at the wedding yesterday, you saw how wonderful it was. We sang Amazing Grace, beautiful flowers, everything. And you can imagine Hosea walk, watching his bride walk down the aisle, decked out, him standing there, waiting for her, maybe even longing for her, maybe even hoping that this marriage would help change her. And there is the priest giving them vows to take, and they take these vows before God and before the people. And Hosea does all this knowing that this wife of his was going to be unfaithful. And that is the picture. That's the picture of God himself in us. Is that he, he, he looks at you with, a, and you can almost say with a twinkle in his eyes, and he, lo- he did that for you, and he looked, looked at you that way before you even came to him. And he does that over and over and over again. So yes, it's a bit scandalous. It's meant to jar and to wake us up. To wake us up out of our spiritual slumber. So Hosea obeys his command, and he found Gomer, and he married her. And then she gives birth to three children who become teaching lessons for Israel's spiritual prostitution and the Lord's anger and even his mercy. So let's look at these three in turn. So Gomer gives birth to the Hosea's first child. Now imagine that wonderful day, that wonderful day that Gomer gives birth, and Hosea holds his child in his hand. He rocks his child. He sees it, looks at it, and then the nurse there says, okay, what is the name of this child? You mothers, or if you've been close to mother, know what that's like. What is the name? You think about the name, don't you? You wrestle with, what am I going to stamp on this child for the rest of his life? And again, God chimes in. He says, Hosea, call his name Jezreel. Call his name Jezreel. Now, this name may be somewhat unfamiliar to you, or if not, all-out alien. What is Jezreel? And why is that such a big deal? It is significant, and it's actually a brilliant way to stir up the people who are otherwise oblivious to their sins. So first, in this first point, I want us to see the, the, notice the irony of a reverse blessing. There's irony here. There's a bit of irony here in this first name. A little history lesson is in order. No, notice the, the reference to Jehu there in verse 4. Yet for a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. That should clue you in. If you have your Bibles and you're looking at it and you're reading and you see a name like that and you should look to the upper left-hand corner, there's sometimes a little letter there. 
And sometimes that will actually give you the historical reference. Just a quick way to how one way you should read your Bible. Those references are helpful. And this reference points us back to the kings again. Right there, Second Kings. And the story of Jehu. Jehu was this, you can almost call him an avenger of justice. Call him a, a mercenary, so to speak. One of the great things that he did, and it was actually approved by God, is during that time Israel was still going through a, a Baal worship, and Ahab was king, and Jehu says, goes in and he slaughters. He wipes out the family. Then later on, he actually tricks all the Baal priests to come into this temple, and he was going to worship Baal himself. He tricks them, brings them all in, and he has 80 men lined outside the temple without them knowing. He locks the door as they go in, and they slaughter all of the priests of Baal. That's Jehu. And all that happened in this town called Jezreel. Now the irony is, God actually approved of that. God approved of that, and he said, because of this, your king, your kingdom, kings from you will, to the fourth generation will remain on the throne. That was a promise. There was a promise attached to it. A promise of longevity of the Davidic throne. The irony here is, God is saying, what does he say? I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel. Now, do you see the irony there? The, 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 the very way that Jehu destroyed the Baal priest was going to be the very same punishment that was going to come on them, on Israel. Not a blessing. There's irony here. So anyone that would have heard that name would have known that. They would have looked at it and said, wait, that's a promise of blessing. The, the, the throne of David is going to go on. And God is saying, no. The irony is, is I'm going to visit you with that same punishment. And that's, how, that's the irony of, if I can be very simple here, that's sort of the irony of sin also, isn't it? We chase after a delight. We chase after an idol. And it doesn't satisfy us. It does the exact opposite. And that's what idols and sin does. It overpromises and underdelivers. It's the irony. It's the, it's the eternal hamster wheel. Chasing, chasing after happiness in all things but God. You chase after happiness, and what don't you find? You don't find happiness. A little example. Imagine you are a, a Jew in Germany in the year 1946, the year after Hitler there in Berlin committed suicide when he knew that his, he had lost. Now imagine your mother there and you give birth to a child and you name the child Berlin or Gestapo. No, as a Jew, you'd say, yes, we're glad Hitler died. But what if the message there was, no, the very thing that happened to Hitler was going to happen to you? That's the shock value of what's going on here. It's the shock value. Like, whoa, wait a minute. What are you saying, Hosea? What are you saying? And he's saying this, that 
because of this broken covenant, I'm angry. God gets angry. It's a holy anger. It's not, it's not irrational. He's not up there throwing this, this fit, wondering how he's going to fix the, 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 the problem down there. No, but these are, these are curses that are going to be thrown upon Israel because of their broken relationship with God. Because of their failure to uphold the covenant. Their failure to uphold those vows that they made on that glorious wedding day there when he released them from Egypt. And then he comes to the second child. We don't know how much time has passed between Jezreel and the second child. It doesn't tell us. The text doesn't tell us. Nevertheless, Gomer has another child. This time it's a daughter. It's a daughter. Now I want us to take note of, of one particular thing. I think it's helpful. Look there at verse 6. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Name her Lo Ruhamah. For I will no longer, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel, but that I should ever forgive him. Notice there's a pronoun change. There's a pronoun change. There's actually a missing pronoun there, which leaves a lot of people to say some striking things. So right here in verse 4, verse 3 exactly, she conceived and bore who? A son. Bore him. Meaning bore Hosea a son. As a matter of fact, the next two children, you don't get that pronoun. You don't get the him there. No, that leaves a lot of people to say, because Gomer was a prostitute, these children probably weren't Hosea's. These children probably weren't Hosea's. Add weight to that. Hosea is actually, actually commanded to have children of whoredom. Add more weight to that. What's the name of the third child? You are not my people. So that leads some people to say, this these children were born of unfaithfulness. But, but, to also, it's not very uncommon, should I say. It's not very uncommon for, in, in Hebrew language, for a pronoun or a verb to carry the weight through the rest of the text, even if it's not mentioned. So we can't make a very strong argument, either or, but I think that's part of the brilliance of the text. The thing is, I think there's a brilliancy here. What if there was a question mark over whether or not these, these were Hosea's children? What if the ambiguity is pointing at that? That every night she came home late, and he's wondering, where was she at? And then when she has a child, is this mine? Remember, this was meant to be a, a living parable. Hosea is experiencing, if I can say this, some of the deep pain that even divinity feels. The deep pain. So what's this name? Lo Ruhamah, which is Hebrew for no mercy. No mercy.
So here, here's what I want us to take notice of, is the destruction of withdrawn compassion. The destruction of withdrawn compassion. Just imagine the pain Hosea must have felt as God uttered those words, you were to name this daughter of yours, no mercy. Not that Hosea was not to give mercy to his daughter, or that the daughter herself was going to be unmerciful, but again, she is a picture of a prophecy. She's a picture of a judgment. Israel had known nothing but the compassion of the Lord. The Lord, throughout the Old Testament, compared himself to a mother who has compassion on her children, or, or, or as a mother who bore them in the womb, carried them. As a matter of fact, this was the very characteristic trait of God that he uttered right there in Exodus. He was one full of compassion, Ruhamah, full of compassion. What is promised here is that the Lord, as a matter of fact, will not view them fondly or merciful any longer. That should be striking. That should strike us dead in the face. What? God, is he reneging on something? We're getting a glimpse into the heart of God. The pains of a broken relationship are bursting forth from his holy heart. But we must, I must not, we must not press that too far because you read the rest of the prophecy, the rest of this book. It teaches us the persistence of God's compassion. And remember what I said at the beginning, the, the whole message of, is, of the book, book of Hosea is the relentless faithfulness of God. As a matter of fact, the entirety of the Bible has the same theme, which this is a mere echo. Persistence, God's compassion culminating in the birth, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Son of God Himself. But here in this text, we see there's this building tension, and that's, that's, that's the point, the shock value that this name is to give. They not have compassion? To not have compassion on them ever again? To not have compassion on the house of Israel, the northern kingdom? And we know from history that Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel is actually taken in exile, wiped out, and they, were, they never returned again. They never returned again. They were destroyed. No, there, there was a remnant that remained in Judah. Says God was still faithful to his covenant people. But this particular people, this nation, lost their light. Lost their light. And we should beware. The New Testament is full of warnings. Full of warnings to covenant people. Those that are within the church visibly. To, to remain unrepentant is no safe thing. And we cannot, we cannot just wave the card of God's compassion and say, ah, I have it. I have it. Israel had it. They were unrepentant. And they proved themselves to never have really had a changed heart. It's terrifying. That is utterly, utterly terrifying. And sin is that devastating. It's that destructive to, your, to our souls. It really is. Don't think otherwise. Don't think just because the curses haven't come upon you yet. 
but they won't. We can't play with it. We can't play with it. Now, another translation difference. And I think that's helpful here. Verse 6. She bore the son. Um, we're going to name the child Lo Ruhamah, for I no longer have compassion in the house of Israel. And then that I would ever forgive them. That's what our English trans, our ESV translation says, and that's what my NA, NASB translation says. But if you read other translations, as a matter of fact, the, the Holman or the CSB translation, it takes it differently. It will say, I will carry them off. That seems to be a big difference. Is God saying he won't forgive them, or is God saying he will carry them off? What is that? Because that verb there, I believe this is helpful. I'm not just giving you a Hebrew lesson here. I hope not, but I believe this is helpful. That verb there can be translated as, the same verb for forgive can be translated as to carry off. To carry off. Now, if you go to chapter 5, verse 14, that same verb is there. I, even I, will tear them to pieces and go away. I will carry away. And there will be none to deliver. They're referencing the exile. They're going to be carried off into exile. So I believe we could faithfully say that Israel here, it's not that God's saying he will never ever forgive their sins, in a sense, if they were to confess their sins. No, he's saying his punishment is coming, and I'm going to carry them off into exile. That's what he's saying there. That's what he's saying there. And then we come to the third child. The tension builds. We go from Jezreel, this irony, to lo ruhamah, no mercy, this terror, this, whoa, God's going to withdraw compassion? Now we go to lo ami, not my children, not my son. And here I want us to see that idolatry led to a complete estrangement. Idolatry led to a complete estrangement. Here we actually get a bit of some passing time, which says that Gomer weaned the child, which some two to three years possibly have passed between no mercy, lo ruhamah, here, lo ami, this third child, this son. And again, Hosea holds this third child. The, the, the delight of his eyes. This is his son. And God says, name this child, not my people. You see, the relationship has come to the, a brink. It's been ruptured. It's been broken. For once Yahweh promised that he will be their God, and they as people, he's reversing the whole order. He's undoing it. No, you are not my people, and I'm not your God. You have proven it to be so. With, with, with your flimsy relationship to me, with me, with your, with your mixing and bringing in, if I can say this, bringing into the marriage bed others with myself. I'm not your God because you have not followed me as your God. How utterly devastating would this message be 
to hear it. How utterly devastating would it be? And how profoundly sad are these words? Israel was nominally the Lord's. They, like an unfaithful people, were brought to the marriage union, others, and God says, You've never been, you're not mine. You haven't been faithful to me. What does Augustine say of idolatry? He says, or of sin, sin is disordered love. And Calvin famously says, we've heard in other sermons, that the heart is a factory of idols. Our hearts just churn them out, like, a, like on a conveyor belt. And Martin Luther said of idols, whatever our hearts cling to and we rely upon, that becomes our God. And Israel has latched on to other things. Their hearts have latched on to other things, and they did away with God ever before God said, I was done with you. Why is this the case? Why, did, why, why would Israel, out of all the blessings that they had, to have God as their God, why are they dazzled by other things? As a matter of fact, there's actually a need in this fallen, fallen world to be dazzled by things. We can't help it. It's actually unavoidable to be mesmerized and dazzled and to latch on. It's the natural reflex of humans. We fix onto something. We take hold of it. We elevate it, even the good things. Even, even the blessings of God are elevated above themselves. And we bow down to it instead of raising our thanksgiving to God. It grips us. Why the passion about success and money? Why do we give our hearts over to it so much to an extent that to go without, we think we lose ourselves? It's not the money, it's not the green or the silver. It's not that you have this amount in your bank account it's not that. It's that we see in it hope. We see in it security. We see in it pleasure. Then it, be, then it becomes our identity. And then it becomes our salvation. It's just, it's, it is a slippery slope. It's a quick one. So Hosea tells us that prosperity is no sign of faithfulness and idolatry is spiritual prostitution. But then he does something amazing. Something actually startling. Something that you're like, wait, what? Where did, where did this come from, God? We aren't left in despair. He actually preaches the gospel by saying God's heart is relentlessly faithful. 10 and 11. It's almost God, it's God breaks from his anger and then is reminded, so to speak, not that God forgot, but it's almost like here he's reminded of his end of the deal, his end of the bargain, the vows that he himself took, that I'm going to be their God, no matter what. And that's why we see here, verse 10 and 11, the utterances of, the, of, of a renewed vow, the, the, the tokens, it's almost like he looks at the ring on his finger and he says, yes, and he looks at the ring on Israel's finger and he says, yes, and those rings for us are the Lord's Supper. And baptism, the rings then were circumcision and the, the, the Passover meal to remind Israel of who they are. Not just of who they are, but of who God is and what God will do 
It's actually embedded in his name. The name Yahweh, I will be your God. And you will be my people. I will be. You can translate it this. I will be whatever I will be. I will be to you whatever I need to be to you to keep you, to sustain you. Because I'm that faithful. So that's where you get the name there, Yahweh. Then you get this reutterance of the Abrahamic promise that, he is going, that Israel is still going to be out and outnumber the sand and the sea. Still going to outnumber them. It's almost like God is breaking forth into praise. Breaking forth into song. Because he loves his people. And he will not forsake them. There's this tension. It's almost like God has stretched out his arm and he is unwilling to pull it back. Even though he's promising it. He's warning them, I'm going to pull it back. But you see this tension. He, he won't. He just can't. He can't bring himself to go against himself. It's impossible for God to do so. He's relentlessly faithful. And as we walk through Hosea, you will see how relentlessly faithful he is. I want, I want to end by, 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 by saying this. Yesterday, here in the worship service, we saw a beautiful wedding. And there we sang this lovely song, which we all know, Amazing Grace. Oh, it's people were singing to the top of their lungs. They were singing, it's like they were singing their testimonies. They were singing the testimonies of God. They were, tat- they were bringing in their stories of salvation as they uttered the words, amazing grace. How sweet the sound, who saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, and now I'm found. But there's one line that's always captured me. There's one stanza that tugs at my heartstrings and reminds me of how how faithful God is. And it's this. Through many dangers, toils, and and snares, we have already come. T'was grace has brought brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. Let me ask you something. Can you say that your idols have been that faithful to you? Only one has. Only one has. And if only if you're not a believer here today, only one can be. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you liked this show, consider a five-star rating, share it with your friends, or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org.